Everybody, welcome to another episode of The Executive. We are at the Bio Conference for the CEO and Investor Conference of Bio in partnership uh, with their podcast, the Bio Podcast. Uh, we're in New York in Times Square, and I'm so excited to be joined by Matthew Price, who's the CEO of Promontory Therapeutics. Matthew, so good to have you here today. Good morning, Matt. Thanks. This is wonderful. And it's I, good, to, good to be in the hometown setting with our New York company here. Not a hard travel for you. Um, and I should note, you're also the co-founder since the yes. very beginning and the chief operating officer. Yes. So, Matthew, excited to have you and would love to hear if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about Promontory, what your team is focused on, and uh, yeah, so what stage you're in now. Sure. So, Promontory Therapeutics, uh, we started the company here in New York. Um, I realize your audience is not a life sciences only audience, so I'll, I'll try to make my responses applicable to other entrepreneurs and, and co-founders. Um, we are a company in drug development, so biotech, uh, and we're in the phase two stage of development in the clinic. So we've taken our program from inception, which was a licensing event, uh, bringing the IP that we discovered we wanted to work with in-house, forming a company around it, all the way through preclinical development, engaging with FDA, entering the clinic, uh, and now through three different phase ones and into phase two. So we're what we would call a mid-stage clinical company at this point, um, with certain elements of proof of concept already in place. And we see ourselves as occupying an emerging niche within what's called immuno-oncology. So immuno-oncology really is I think most of your listeners would have at some point encountered these kinds of headlines about cancer immunotherapy, you know, really revolutionizing treatment options for patients. And this is something we've witnessed over the life of our company uh, occurring and evolving. And what we learned along the way was that the program that we had licensed was what we would call immunogenic. So we have small molecule agents in-house that we now as I said, are in clinical development. And what we've learned in the lab is that these small molecules can kill cancer cells in a way that actually engages the immune system. And that can be beneficial for the duration of a patient's response, the stability of their disease that was otherwise growing very rapidly, um, et cetera. So this is um, a field that has been mostly occupied by antibody therapies and other modalities. So small molecules now in this field are, are an emerging area of immuno-oncology in what we would think of as the next wave or the next generation of approaches to how to solve unmet needs for cancer and, patients. And for the, the benefit of the audience, when you say small molecules, what's the application when it actually goes into a patient? What does that look like? So it's uh, so the active pharmaceutical ingredient is a it's a small molecule. I mean, it's a very light, uh, small chemical entity, which yeah. is novel and which is patented around the world. In contrast to antibodies, which are large molecules, proteins, um, or even cell therapies, which are you know the delivery of entire cells into right. the body. So small molecules are, let's say, the, the classical. Um, type of pharmaceutical going back, you know, 100 or more years to things like aspirin, yeah. um, also chemotherapies in cancer care, but even novel targeted therapies in cancer care, many of them are small. Will you molecules. be able to take a pill or is it more of a shot? 
Some of them are. Ours yeah. is an intravenous injection, so okay. an infusion over one hour. And when Got you it. say you did, um, again, talking about the, the life, life, life cycle of a life science company, and especially in pharma, you're three phase ones, you go to phase two, and then probably phase three, then commercialization. Why, what does it mean when you say three phase ones? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things, you know, I'd love in the future to sort of try to better communicate to the world is how drug development is done. Um, I think during the pandemic, the broader public got a sense of how challenging, but also how uh, inspiring and fascinating this field can be. So why three phase ones? It's a great question. The classic phase one says, you know, I'm, I'm treating patients for the first time with my new chemical entity, and I'm making sure that it's safe as I go through higher and higher doses of the drug. That's the traditional or classic, say, approach to a phase one study. And the difference is that uh, certain populations might be viewed differently by the regulator. So an example of that is, when we treated patients with solid tumors, we had a different regulatory review division at FDA than when we treated patients with multiple myeloma, which is a, a blood cancer. So you have to satisfy whatever area of the regulatory approach you're in. Got it. And then the other, so those were two phase ones. The third phase one was a combination study. So then we had to say to the regulator, uh, we're going to demonstrate that we can combine our drug now with another agent safely. And therefore we needed to do some, what we call dose escalation work to do that. So these three phase ones were a lot of work, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of complexity in, in what I just said. And then of course, there's the underlying biology, which is uh, really at the end of the day, what, what the field cares about, that you're addressing the underlying biology in a way that works and you're doing it safe. And then as you go from phase one to phase two, what does that mean for you as a company yeah. in terms of how you have to staff the company? What are the resources you need? Right. How do things change? Remarkable uh, to see the evolution along the way. Uh, I mean, I can tell you uh, when we took the license to the program that we're developing, uh, there were two of us, my co-founder and myself. Wow. Uh, he's been the CEO since inception. I've been the COO since inception. So, you know, we were business partner founders. At each stage of development, we've had to um, evolve in the sense of the type of expertise that we need, uh, the number of people we need in-house versus consultants out of house or academic research collaborations, or uh, for that matter, what we call contract research organizations, which are, you know, well-established firms that do certain aspects of drug development. Um, so going into phase two, we actually doubled the size of the company in about wow. 18 months. Uh, we deepened the capital base, and these are necessary yeah. things. And, you know, during phase two, while you're going through this, what... Can you talk about like what's happening internally? Like what are the things you're working on while you're going through that? Yeah. So I would say one of the things that we recognized we had to do uh, increasingly was to bring not just, you know, hands and feet. So just sheer working bulk uh, yeah. within the company, 
um, but certain very finite pieces of expertise within the company. So you need uh, clinical trials managers. These people need to understand how to run a protocol with you know, major research centers. And then you need somebody to lead those people once you get to a certain stage. So all that we've brought in-house. Um, regulatory functions, you know. We have somebody who runs what's called our pharmacovigilance. So we have to monitor all the incoming safety data from each of those protocols and from each country we're working in. So you can imagine as you increase protocols, as you increase jurisdictions around the world, <laughs> you need more and more people. So, yeah. um, and we've remained, though, very lean. Um, so I would say, you know, as an entrepreneur, one of the things that's occupied my mind is I would call it growth management. Yeah. Uh, where do we allocate resources? What are we missing internally? And how can we, how can we solve for that for the particular stage of development that we're, we're working towards at and a given moment? CEO, as CEO, at, you know, part of that is your, I mean, that's your role, right? To manage that whole the operations of the company. Can you talk about what a, what a CEO looks like at an early stage life science company? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think um, there are a lot of types of COOs. Um, there are maybe not um, at every stage company in biotech um, necessarily a COO. Some people may prioritize um, other aspects of, of the company. Uh, in our case, it really has been a catch-all role crossing, let's say, at the earliest stage of development, strategy, finance, and all operations. Now that we've built out the C-suite, we have a chief medical officer, we have a chief financial officer. It's uh, more and more, for me, leadership coordination yeah. and oversight you know, over all the various functions that I'm directly responsible for. So those are regulatory, business development, research and development, um, and, and the regulatory safety aspect. So. Um, I, I see it as a uh, more and more a strategic role to really try to understand where the company needs to be going, how it needs to position itself uh, in a rapidly evolving right. field. And, you know, as part of that evolvement, raising capital has been interesting to say the least in the last year, maybe year and a half. But you've raised quite a bit of capital over your career. What have you been, what have you found to be, you know, the, the keys to success in raising capital from investors, especially in this environment? First and foremost is relationships. Um, I would say even more important for a young company than data. Um, data is next most important. Those two have to go together in our, in our world. Um, if you have only data and no relationships, you know, you, you'll just be sort of lost swimming around. If you have only relationships and no credible data, yeah. you won't get past a certain point. Um, so we've raised $74 million uh, since inception. And I think outside of the life sciences, that may seem like a lot of money for an early, an yeah. early stage venture. But we've been around for a while now. And actually, you know, that for where we are as a company, that is um, uh, not a lot of money to proceed into phase two, which is another way of saying we've been incredibly lean, yeah. very efficient. We've generated a lot of R&D productivity out of those dollars. And um, that will need to scale. 
So again, it's about um, it's about harnessing the data and crafting the right story around it that people can relate to, and then ensuring that relationships are in place to you know catalyze having capital come into the yeah. company. Um, and I think in in biotech, you know, there are many sources of capital, so we're a little bit uh, unique in the sense that. We've scaled to where we are, primarily with family offices. So, um, very successful entrepreneurs or business leaders in our network, which has grown over time, who are global. So, crossing the U.S., U.K., Switzerland, and Asia and Oceania. Um, so, it's been a, a really um, astonishing effort to, you know, in the early days, travel the world. To build those relationships in such a way that the company could be could be fueled and backed, and done so with like-minded people, yeah, um, people who are mission-driven like us. We really aim to change the way cancer patients are treated for the better, um, and people who have the wherewithal to to stick with it for the time that's required, which in biotech is always longer. It's a long time. It's right? always longer than yeah. one than one predicts or plans. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, you, you mentioned this current capital environment. There's been a lot of talk at the conference about this. Uh, I think it's, it's improving. Um, and we are launching a Series B capital raise, which will very noticeably increase our capital base. Um, but it is a challenging environment. And I think the way I think of it is um, it's sort of like everything else that we've seen through the pandemic and, and after the pandemic, meaning there were wild swings back yeah. and forth. Um, we had an incredible flood of money come into the life sciences around the COVID therapeutics and vaccines, and then everything that surrounded that. Um, it became very attractive for a lot of different investors and very successful. But um, I think some of those investors saw that, um, you know, you, you cannot be invested in this industry with a short-term perspective and do it successfully for yeah. more than a short term, right? right? So I think we saw that swing back. I think there are probably folks who got um, who got burned along the way as certain programs, you know, didn't pan out financially on their time horizons. So we had then we had a pendulum swinging away from biotech in terms of capital allocation, and I think is talked about in the field right now is, you know, as we see interest rates begin to look like they may be peaking, yeah. it gives, you know, prospect going forward that when interest rates start to be reduced again in the reasonable, you know, near to midterm, um, that allows these long delayed cash flows of biotech drug development, you know, to be discounted at lower rather than higher rates valuations can come up, money can, you know, come back into the field. So it is very cyclical. Yeah. Um, you know, these are macro forces that are shaping how we think of raising capital, how we deal with raising capital. And a lot of companies, you know, are struggling. Um, so we believe with our data and our relationships that we can make it through this, um, you know, narrow strait of, yeah. of capital raising. Um, but it's still open. And, and yeah. yeah. And the other thing, though, is that pharma is involved. You know, we've yeah. got a lot of big pharma companies 
um, like in other industries, there are very, you know, serious established incumbent players in the life sciences who are looking for innovation. So a lot of what's being talked about here this week as well is, you know, will we be seeing M&A um, waves coming? And there certainly is evidence of that. And of course, small biotechs can, can benefit from that, um, including different forms of risk sharing, which are, are really uh, innovative yeah. in, in, you know, the interplay between biotech and even between, sorry? There's just a lot of collaboration. There's, there are many forms of collaboration. Yeah. So we chose in our collaboration with, with Pfizer and uh, EMD Serono, which yeah. is, is the German Merck based in Darmstadt, Germany. Uh, we have a joint collaboration with those two companies. Um, we chose uh, at the time to do a non-economic form of collaboration. Our belief was we go through this with our own funding and we come out with positive data. We will be happy that we retained all the rights from that early stage of development. So yeah. that's one example of how we, you know, we operated. And um, others are forms of, you know, economic collaboration. Do you want to, add, to kind of press into when you talk about relationships? Because for sure the data, which is, which is difficult, early stage company, you only have so much data, right? Whether it's life science, it's tech, you name it, right? You only have so much data. But the relationships piece is so key. But how do you develop these relationships when, you know, you're, Maybe you're not raising money at that time. Maybe you are raising money. Like, how do you form all these different relationships so that when you, you know, quote unquote, need that relationship, it's there for you? Like, how do you manage all that? I I think you you can't think of you can't think of it as something that you need to do at a certain moment in time. Yeah, it's continual. It is it is continuous. Um, you you know. I think that we've gained credibility with our investor base by being very communicative. And that's not just, you know, formally holding a board meeting when it is expected. It's just well beyond that. It's yeah. um, transparency about, you know, what issues the company is facing. It's, you know, um, gathering the, the talents that you have on a board or in the investor community to, to bring those to bear to, look for other, you know, logical extensions of your, your relationship network. We've been, I think, quite successful at that. Um, and it's, it's a continuous yeah. effort. I've heard uh, a lot of investors say they, they start to know when a company is not doing well, when they start to not get the quarterly updates, not get all the communication. They start to know there's problems there, right? Or the ones that are, even if there are some problems, they appreciate the transparency, right? When they're getting those monthly, quarterly, whatever it is, updates that they have in cadence, there's always that communication. They trust those, at, those, at, trust those leaders. Yeah, I, I think that has been the, the bedrock policy of our CEO. And I've learned a lot from that, is that you've got to be engaged with the people who are backing you and, and believing in you and don't you know, don't think of a quarterly update yeah. as something that you just have to get out of the way. You need to be on the phone with those people in the meantime. Yeah. You know, give them an update um, in the interim. Uh, convene the board, you know, outside of the regular schedule, um, even just for a strategic update to gather people's thoughts. Things like that are, are I think, critical. Um, because you, uh, to your point, you can't just come to people when you need something. Right, relationship is not a good hope. Um, so you obviously have a lot on your plate as a COO. 
you know, I'd love to hear how you manage it all. I, I think you're on the phone with your family right yeah. before you jumped on this, right? Yeah. So you've got a, a family at home and a business that also needs a lot of, you know, needs a lot of love and nurture. Yeah. How do you manage things, keep on top of it all? Like, are there certain things that really stick out to you that are like, this has really helped me in my career to manage it all? Uh, I, I don't know that I have uh, a real answer to that question. Um, you know, it, it is, it's a, it's a struggle. I, I think um, if I could share with other young entrepreneurs, and, and I've watched, you know, some of my colleagues from Columbia Business School go through this, even those who've started their own companies. Um, one example, I, I, someone I very much look up to is John Stein, who founded Betterment. We were classmates, you know, I watched him have his, his children while he was running his, his other baby, his company that he yeah. created. I, I think um, you stretch to meet the demands. I, I never would have thought five years ago that, you know, adding uh, a family to the equation would be a quantum difference. It is a quantum difference. Interesting. Yeah. And so you, you need support around you, you know. You need uh, help on a daily basis of some some form of childcare if you know if you need it, and you can't be shy about that. You know? And then you need your team to be aware that things have changed. You need to harness the team around you. Who, you know, I have found incredible um, levels of understanding and empathy. And you know, we have several working mothers in our company, and so you you find that people know about this, right? Yeah, right. Even though it might be new to you as a new parent and as an entrepreneur and pe that resonates with people. Yeah. So it's about rallying. Yeah. Whether it's family or business, there's always people you can go to yeah. seek advice to end on that on advice. Is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over your career that really sticks out to you as I always hang on to that. That was maybe the best advice I ever got. It's a tricky one. Um, advice comes in many forms from many places. Um, I, I will say that there's a recent piece of advice that I find uh, very fitting. Um, came from one of our board members, um, and it is that you know leadership involves addressing the elephant in the room. So as I stretch in my career to take on more and more responsibility and more visibility, like today is an example. Um, you know, that echoes with me, especially in an environment in biotech where we have these capital constraints right now. You can't pretend that's not happening. Yeah. So address the elephant in the room, whatever it is, yeah. and people, and then gather the community of support around you as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a leader. I, I think that's become, a, let's say, an increasing, you know, way of, of looking at things for me. Uh, and, and then, you know, the other thing is, it's a journey. <laughs> yeah. So to me, uh, and not all entrepreneurs face, you know, the timelines that we do in biotech. But, um, to me, if you're not embracing the journey, you're also missing something. Uh, yeah. You know, embrace that, the struggles and the highs along the way. It's well said. Yeah. You've got to enjoy the journey. Otherwise, before you know it, it's been 20 years, right? And you never enjoyed any of it. Right. And it's like you, you don't know when you're in the good times until you're out of the good times, right? So just embrace it. Well, I love that. Matthew, really appreciate you Thank taking you. the time. Excited to see what you and the team builds at Promontory Therapeutics. Thanks and, very much. I uh, really appreciate the time.